Okay, so here we are in Luke chapter 7. We're looking at verses 1 to 17 this morning. And there are two stories here, two quite different stories. One about a centurion and one about uh, a widow whose only son had died. I'm going to read them in just a minute. But I want to, first of all, remind you of the context that we are in. Uh, Back in October, when we got as far as Luke chapter 5... I uh, did an overview of chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 because they sit between the moment when Jesus calls disciples to him to be with him and the moment when he sends those same disciples out and commissions them as apostles. And so these few chapters sit in, in between those two bookends and they make up for us a record of Jesus' training program. If we wonder what is it that Jesus does with a person to take them from being a follower to being someone that he can send out in his power to represent him, then those things are recorded for us in these few chapters. There's a similar chunk in Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel. They say some slightly different things, um, but nonetheless, they cover pretty much the same ground, and that's where we are again this morning. These aren't only stories of Jesus' amazing ministry touching the lives of people, but through them, he was instructing those who were following him. It's helpful for us to see these chapters as instruction for us too. We can learn from this record of how Jesus instructed others. Uh, If you were here last Sunday, you heard John McGinley from Leicester sum up the church in the UK with one word. And uh, that word was incompetence. Uh, Well, I, I agree that if we were living in the life of the life of God, understanding his word, if we had learnt the lessons that Jesus has for us, if we had learnt the lessons that are written for us in the pages of the Gospels, then we would be much more like the church that we then find in the Acts of the Apostles, which was a church that was heaving with growth, seeing people's lives transformed, seeing communities transformed, And we in the UK see churches, we feel like we're struggling to maintain a toehold much of the time. Thank God there's all kinds of growth that is going on. We're not totally incompetent. But there's much for us to learn. And it's in that spirit that I hope we can come to these verses this morning and see what we have to learn. So I'm going to read through verses 1 to 17 and just make one or two observations as we go through to help us get the sense of it. So it starts saying, when Jesus had finished saying all this, just reminding us that these verses come in a context. He'd just been teaching them some stuff to get into their hearts. It says in verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, somewhere he'd been before. And would visit again. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him 
to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, they said, because, because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Uh, just as a little note, for Jesus to enter a Gentile household would have made him unclean. This centurion was a Gentile, had not become one of the nation of Israel. So this was a request for him to go somewhere that would make him ceremonially unclean. Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. This is the centurion recognizing Jesus' awkwardness and letting him, he's being polite. He understands that a Jewish teacher is going to have a problem entering a Jewish household, and he gives him the option. He actually says quite clearly, don't trouble yourself to come under my roof. I don't deserve it. That's why I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, He was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. It's worth just noting in verse 9 where it says that Jesus was amazed. The feeling of amazement is quite a lot like the feeling of surprise. But it is a little bit different. The fact that Jesus was amazed doesn't mean that he was blindsided with surprise, um, as Chelsea were yesterday. That was surprising, as well as amazing. For those of you who don't know, what planet are you living on? Most amazing sporting thing happened yesterday. Look at the internet, but not now. And um, midwives... I think, live a life of constant amazement, even though it's not surprising. When a baby's born, it's amazing, but not a surprise. Jesus can be amazed, even though he wasn't blindsided by what happened. Verse 11, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples And a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. And then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up, and he began to talk. 
and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, seeing these two stories alongside each other is helpful because it helps us to see that Jesus, in his teaching and training, was not teaching a clear technique for doing miracles. Jesus instead did different things at different times. Here's a little list of things that are different between these two stories. With the centurion's servant, Jesus was sent for, but with the widow's son, he just happened across this funeral procession. The centurion was commended for his faith. There is no mention of faith with the widow's son, or with the widow, or anyone else present. Uh, there's a difference in these two stories in Luke's gospel about whether any words were spoken. The centurion says, uh, say the words, there's no record in Luke's gospel of Jesus saying anything, but he speaks a word to the dead boy, to the dead man. It's, to be accurate, we should note that in Matthew's gospel, when the story of the centurion's servant is recounted, Jesus does speak a word, just to be clear. But there's a difference between the two stories in Luke's gospel. Uh, there's no touch involved. Jesus doesn't even get into the house where the centurion's servant is lying, dying. But he goes and touches the coffin. Jesus avoided uncleanness by not going into the centurion's home. Whatever the centurion said, Jesus could have pushed through and gone into the unclean place, but he didn't. We can't take any lesson from that for our uh, behavior and practice, because in the very next story, he goes up and touches a dead person's coffin, which made him unclean. So there's not a neat A, B, C, D, E, do these things, say these words, touch these things, look for faith, you know, whatever it may be that we can follow, that we can learn from these two stories. I'd like to suggest instead that there are two things that do stand out from these stories that are they're things that matter and they're things that will matter to us if we want to become more like Jesus, if we want to become Uh, the kind of people that Jesus could send into different situations to represent him as he sent the apostles. And they are these things, two different principles. One is authority. Jesus acted with authority. And then again, with compassion. The headline word in the story of the centurion is around authority as the centurion talks around that, and that's what Jesus sees as faith. Interestingly, the Jews thought that the centurion was worthy because of what he'd done. He'd built a synagogue. But Jesus commends the man's faith. He looks into his heart 
and commends not his deeds, but the internal workings of a man who understood authority. Uh, In the story of the widow's son, it says that Jesus, verse 13, Jesus' heart went out. He came across someone in need, and his response was compassion. His guts were moved. His heart went out to her. Now, both of these things matter. I'm glad that we've got these two stories together this morning because both of these things matter. If we have authority but no compassion, then that is oppressive. Authority without love is oppressive. On the other hand, if we have compassion without authority, then we're toothless. We're unable, we, we care, but unable to effect change, even as we love people. But when these two things come together, it's brilliant. Authority, together with compassion, does people good. The kind of good that, that, that's... Uh, Spoken about in verse 16, where it says, God comes, it says, it says in verse 16, God has come to help his people. That's what it says. Now, uh, that's the Jews who've seen this Jewish man raised up speaking of that experience, but putting it together with the centurion who was not one of God's people, we might well say, not just God has come to help his people, But God comes to help people, full stop. God comes to help people. So all we're going to do this morning is look at these two words, authority and compassion. And um, I don't think I've got any great revelation to share. Just the opportunity to provide some, some space for reflection, a prompt for reflection on what these things mean in, in our lives. If we can get a bit more authority out of this morning, if we can get a bit more compassion out of this morning, then we'll leave this place a bit more competent. Although that's not the most important thing. We'll leave this place a bit more like Jesus, which is far better. So, authority and the centurion. Jesus commended the centurion, so it would be good for us to understand what he was like. Now, the most obvious thing about the centurion is that he's a centurion. And we need to just get our heads around what that means. What was the job description for a centurion? What did he have to do? Polybius, the historian, says this. Centurions must be men who can command. Steady in action and reliable. Centurions must be men who can command. Steady in action and reliable. And indeed, this is what the centurion says about himself. He says, I know how to tell people what to do. In the modern world, we might see him as a competent executive, someone who can tell people what to do, um, not hamstrung by personal insecurities, uh, but able to command. 
that's a centurion for you. He must be that to get the job. And then when he describes himself, that's what he says about himself. But he is perhaps an unusual centurion in that along with this, he's humble. That's what we can take from verse 6 onwards where he says, don't trouble yourself to come to me. I don't deserve this. Though he could command, he wasn't full of himself. He was humble and took a lowly place in his heart. Another thing about this man was that he understood the role of words. He says, sends the message to Jesus saying, just say the word. And he describes his authority as being expressed through verbal commands. Do this. Go. Come. He understands how authority works. If we put this together, we could say, here was a man who was embedded well into a flow of authority. And he was able to say, look, I get how this works. I understand the dynamics of authority at work. Now, today, we have our democratic processes, uh, which we value. But it's still the case that over time, if there's no one with executive authority to issue instructions, then businesses communities, organizations of all sorts will perish over time if there's no one that has that kind of executive authority to issue instructions and ensure that the things that should be done get done. It's great that we have democratic control over who is in that executive position politically. I'm grateful for that. I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, are. But the fact of the matter is that we still elect people to be in charge. Authority is a blessing. It is a help. Now, as we read this story about the centurion and Jesus, it's very interesting, very good. There's authority at work. But how does that translate for us today? We can't call upon a physical Jesus to please come by and take charge of our situations. But we can put together the reality of an authoritative Jesus and an understanding that this authority is expressed through words. And we can think about the fact, ask the question, where does God's authority reside now in word form? It's not a trick question. Uh, There we go. It's here. God's authority for us now in word form is provided for us through the scriptures, through the Bible. Amazingly, if, if there's any sort of hesitation in our hearts to sort of accord the Bible the same status as Jesus physically present speaking. If there's any kind of niggling doubt as to whether that's a a sort of an intelligent step to make, 
we could just look back a few verses into Luke chapter 4, where Jesus himself submits himself to the scriptures. When he's faced with temptation from the devil, his response is to quote scripture and to use that as his authority in the battle facing him. He doesn't just speak his own words. He takes the scriptures. And again in Luke chapter 4, when he's laying out his manifesto for ministry, when he's explaining in the synagogue at Nazareth what he's come for, what he's going to do, how he's going to change the world, he doesn't present it as his own bright idea. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He quotes from the scriptures. This Jesus sets us an example of submitting himself to the authority of the scriptures. If you're anything like me, you're probably more motivated at the idea of gaining authority than, than sitting under authority. Um, there's a, I understand some people find comfort in someone else being in charge. And it's kind of a, for some people, it's a relaxing place to be. I have a cousin who really struggled when he left the army because someone told him what to do all the time. And that was straightforward. And when he, when he left, he found it difficult because he didn't have someone telling him what to do all the time. It was quite, quite um, a, a lot more for him to have to, to cope with. Um, living in Oxford for some years, I think it's more common around here for people to want to be in charge. It's a kind of a spirit of the city. You know, we, uh, there's a lot of people in this city who think the world would be a better place if only they were running it. <laughs> Which is largely a lie from, from uh, yeah, somewhere. But, um, <laughs> but there's an instinct. So it's significant for us that whatever we desire in gaining authority, Jesus commends a man who stands out from other centurions in his humility. Why is Jesus talking to this centurion and not others? He he commends a man who displays humility. So what does this mean practically? Um, It means us choosing to engage personally with the scriptures. That's what it comes down to. Uh, Choosing to dwell. Choosing to meditate. Choosing to let the words that are given to us, shape our thinking and feeling. That's what it means to sit under scripture. Jesus taught us to pray, and it's recorded in here. We should pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Then we pray and we act according to God's revealed will. One of the things that we often do is sort of leaf through the scriptures, looking things up, asking, you know, what is it that the Bible says about this? What is it that the Bible says about that? I've got my questions. How is the Bible going to answer my questions? And if I don't like the first answers I come across, is there another interpretation? Which, through the wonders of the internet, is always answered by, yes, there is. There's, there's always another interpretation. Someone, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how many ways you can, can wriggle. Instead of that, I want to offer a simple encouragement this morning of a different kind of practice, which is not just to treat the Bible like some kind of reference book, 
but to take hold of it daily and dwell on it. Dwell on what it, meditate on it. Read whatever bit you're going to read, not because it answers your questions, but because it's there and every bit of it's the word of God. Just take a bit of it and chew on it. Asking yourself, what would this, if I, if I embrace it, what's, what would this do for me to embrace this today? <laughs> I've been reading through Job. Um, I, I'm, I'm struggling to get away from the feeling that what I should be doing day by day as I read through it is become depressed. Because it's a, it's a bit like that. But as I've persevered with chewing through all of the speeches that are given by all of these guys, none of whom know what's really going on, one thing has begun to change in my thinking, and I'm grateful for it. I, I started asking you, well, here I am, I've, I felt prompted to read Job. This is good. It will help me with that thorny matter of, you know, why is it that we suffer? Um, and once again, I've had my perspective changed because Job doesn't answer the question of why we suffer. It rather asks us to, to reflect on how will we, how will we do when our faith is tested? What will that be like? When, when testing comes our way, what kind of faith will be found in us? Do we only follow God for the goodies? Different question. I've been shaped by that afresh. Come under the authority of those words and I'm asking different questions because of it. I know that many of you are doing this stuff day in, day out, week in, week out. I want to say that's brilliant. And those for whom that habit has maybe drifted a little bit, it'll be amazing for you, do you, the world of good, to get back into it. And if you've never dwelt upon the scriptures before, um, start with one of the Gospels and go through it, reflect on it for yourself and watch it do you good. Um, authority. Huh. There is um, something very widespread in our culture now. A, a kind of instinct for rejecting authority, for, you know, for being anti-authoritarian, for, for pushing that away. I want to suggest that that reaction, that kind of knee-jerk reaction against authority, wherever it comes from, is often a superficial symptom of something else. I said before that authority without compassion is oppressive. Uh, my observation would be that more often than not, when someone is struggling with authority, there's a, the further issue is doubt as to whether the, the person in authority really loves them. And as we approach the scriptures and 
maybe this morning you're asking questions. Do I really want to submit to this? Is this, is this really going to do me good? Is this really something that's going to lead to my flourishing? I want to suggest that perhaps the issue underneath that is, do you really know that God loves you? If you know that the God of the Bible loves you, it does not change your attitude towards the scriptures. If you doubt that God loves you, it's very hard to accept his words. They feel more oppressive than beneficial. They feel like a demand from someone who doesn't understand. It doesn't really make sense, does it, to say that the Bible loves us. If we talk about receiving someone's authority, it matters whether they love us. It's a little bit more complicated with the Bible because it's, it's a book and the book doesn't love us. But the words come from one who does. The words come from the God who's loved us before we existed. Who loves us knowing everything about us. Who, who when he gives us commands, doesn't do so ignorant of our personal reality. He doesn't do it kind of hoping that the words will somehow hit the mark. He speaks knowing us. And he speaks words determined to do us good. I just want to leave a moment's quiet for a minute or two before moving on to think about compassion for you to process what I've just said. I'm suggesting that we submit ourselves to the scripture through a process of meditating on them, allowing them to get into us and change us. I'm suggesting that one of the reasons we might not do that is because we're not sure that God loves us. And I pray, Lord God, now that you would do something new amongst us to establish in us a love for your, for your word, a love for your authority intended to bless us. And you'd come, Holy Spirit, cause our spirits to cry out, Abba, Father, assured that you love us, assured that we've been adopted. I pray against those nagging thoughts that perhaps stoked through some negative experiences of authority figures in our lives. But however they've come in, Lord, we speak against any distortion of the, uh, our perception of you as loving Father God. We speak against that in Jesus' name. And we ask that a plumb line of true understanding of loving Father God would come to us right now. Come and wash us clean of just this, the muck that, that steps in and takes us away from that simple understanding. Loving God. Loving instruction given to us. Take us to that place where we can enjoy drawing from your word and letting it shape us.
Thank you, Lord. It's good, isn't it, that God's here. <laughs> um, one of the amazing things about getting to, to, to talk from the scriptures and to preach is that it's not, like an, it's not just like some kind of academic lecture. <laughs> uh, God is present by his spirit and working his word into us as we, as we look at it. Thank you, Lord. Okay, um, one more thing about this centurion, just to underline all of this stuff. But also, he was an outsider. I've already said that it would have been awkward for Jesus to go into his home. He was an outsider. He, he was an outsider with some friends, um, although they were the kind of friends that you get by spending money on people. So I'm not quite sure what's, you know, how, how deep the friendship was, whether there was any personal warmth, but they liked him because he was a benefactor. He was, this man was still an outsider. It says actually in verse 9, just to make it clear, Jesus says of the centurion, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. So he sees the centurion clearly as outside of Israel. He was an outsider. Through these, ver, uh, these chapters, 5, 6, 7, and 8, this is something that Jesus does repeatedly. So first of all, he goes to four men and calls them to be his disciples. So there's, there's four of them in at the start, Peter, James, James and John. Peter, I'm having a, that's right, isn't it? Having a funny moment. Peter, James, James and John, that's what I'm saying. Graham agrees with me. Someone look it up. I just had a funny moment there. And Andrew. Andrew, that's the name I'm looking for. Thank, thank you very much. Awkward moment for me. Uh, <laughs> a bit like this morning when Andy was doing this call to worship and saying which psalms are I mean, shouting out insistently from the front what I think is in Psalm 1 that's in Psalm 2 but you know I'm supposed to know the Bible but so that's just that's just a cathartic thing for me there explaining my uselessness at times okay moving on um yeah Jesus repeatedly draws in outsiders he takes hold of these four guys beforehand and then they're thinking brilliant we're at the center of this new people of God this new Israel that Jesus is talking about, stoked up, excited to be at the center of a new thing. Next thing Jesus does is invite in someone else who's only a tax collector. I mean, that's got to be a downer, hasn't it, for the first four? Jesus is just, he's just devalued the fellowship massively. I mean, it's a little bit like when the hobbits join in the fellowship of the ring. It's like there's some cool warriors around, hobbits. They have hairy feet. It's, it's not the same anymore. Jesus repeatedly includes others. He includes uh, this loan shark kind of guy. Uh, and then he goes and calls another seven to make up the number 12, which, which is further devaluing the fellowship. It's taking these disciples on a journey in which this community is really not about them. 
It's not about them getting status. It's not about them being glorified. It's about including other people. Um, when Jesus called him more, it led to an ongoing debate amongst the 12 men. Who, was his, who were his best mates? You know, James and John even send their mother to carry on the conversation. You will have James and John next. Like, when it comes down to it, the ones who are right next to you, that will be James and John, my boys, won't it? There's this ongoing, it's not easily resolved. There's an attitude of heart in the disciples about wanting to be the, the most important and the closest in, which makes them unhappy about the others being so close. Jesus keeps doing it. Here we are in chapter 7. He goes to someone outside the people of Israel and says, best I've seen yet. Yeah, I wonder how the 12 felt about that. Like they're, the, they're like the elite forces, you know, special crew and all of that. He goes, well, look, there's a Gentile over there that's better than you lot. Jesus keeps doing this. We're going to see in a couple of weeks' time as we go on through, there's a chunk that in the NIV has this title, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. There's another two boxes to tick, sinful people and women. They weren't expecting to be included. And it comes to a head in chapter 8 when Jesus' mothers and brothers come to see him and he says, no, you're not my family. My family is all these people. Anyone who hears my word and puts it into practice, that's my family. It's including people again and again and again. Now, if there's anyone who is more outside society than any of the above list, it's someone who's already died. I'm sure that comes top of the list of people who, are no, who aren't in society is dead people. <laughs> I don't know what we can go much further than that. And Jesus sees this dead person and has compassion and decides to include him. Has to raise him from the dead first. Um... What I want to say here, to observe from the chapter, is that compassion pushes us beyond the normal boundaries. Wherever the boundaries sit in our lives, you see, some of those boundaries you might feel are sort of formed by, by a sense of what's right and wrong. So people that do the right thing get to be closer into us, and people that do the wrong thing need to be held at a distance. That's one kind of, the kind of moral or maybe a doctrinal thing. But if we're honest, most of the time, it's more to do with how much we can be bothered. Whether we've really got it in our hearts to love people enough to follow the example of Jesus in going out and sharing uh, who we are, sharing our, our lives with people who are outside of things. Compassion pushes us beyond the normal boundaries. Jesus took hold of this dead guy and in doing so made himself unclean. Stepped outside of you know, a good Jewish pattern of life in order to take hold of someone and include them. Jesus risked his reputation, sacrificed his personal options and his freedom of action because of compassion. Now, um, if you, are, um, if you were here sometime last autumn, you would have heard me speaking in glowing terms about how pleased I am that Hillsong are planting in Oxford. 
I think they're doing a brilliant thing. Obviously, as I think I mentioned at the time, I had a conversation with their pastor. Um, they are going to see loads of people born again who are then going to spend a little bit of time with them and then go and join other churches that are a bit more pastoral. Um, it's going to be great. It's going to be a wonderful blessing for the city and everyone's going to love it in, in the fullness of time as that begins to happen because that's what happens everywhere that Hillsong plant. So that's all very good. Um, so in what I'm about to say, please don't hear anything different other than just how pleased I am that Hillsong are there. But one of the things that I see happening is new songs that are a bit like that, um, new, new churches that are a bit like that happen, is that Christians make choices about where to join in because of what they enjoy, what's, what's going to be good for them. This is going to, I'm going to get more out of this more easily. Um, and there may well be people who've joined any one of the new churches in the city, Hillsong or others, who have, a, who have a more noble motive than that. So I'm not trying to judge anyone, but there are a whole bunch of people who make choices because of what they think will be easier for them. I contrast that with a church that we planted on Blackbird Lees 12 years ago now, um, which has in recent years dwindled in number a bit, despite running the biggest youth program in the county, being filled with wonderful people, great worship, great teaching, excellent fellowship, and all the rest of it. And I can only conclude that there are not that many Christians in the city who love Blackbird Lees. Does that make sense? Um, They're not making the choice of where to engage with God's people on the basis of compassion. Because if they were, there'd be churches heaving all over the Lees and Rose Hill and Wood Farm. One of the things that um, that was, has been noted about the youth work that is done by the Lees Youth Program, which was started by the Lees Community Church, is that uh, other workers, youth workers, social workers, whatever, live off the estate, come in, do their good work in the day, and then go home again. The church is different. The church consists of people who go and live in the community. And that's all, at the end of the day, driven by love. I'm highlighting the Lees Church this morning, partly because I I dare to believe that there are a few people here this morning for whom that's going to catch your hearts, and maybe God's going to speak to you about moving to Blackbird Lees. There's something like 120 churches in Oxford, It's not far off one in a thousand, one for every thousand people in the city. On the Lees, where there's about 13,000 people, there's nothing like enough churches. There's like a couple. And um, I think maybe God would want want to speak to someone about that this morning, about being a part of bringing God's kingdom there. The issue is of compassion. It's It's easy to talk about compassion... But stepping over the lines and over the boundaries is sometimes very difficult. I remember that feeling very distinctly a few years ago when I did feel prompted to join the Oxford Council of Faiths as one of the Christian representatives meeting with Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and Baha'i and pagans. And and I was a bit intimidated by all of that. I wondered what it would do to me to engage with all of those different people 
the battle was an internal one, I came out of it with compassion for people. There's something about love for people that pushes us beyond what we would choose to do to, in, to engage with others. Um, okay, let's recap. Then we might have a little bit of sense as to what's going on. Uh, here we go. Oh, look at that. How organized was that? This is trying to bring it all together for this morning. Authority without compassion is oppressive. We need love, but love without authority is toothless. If we can get these two things together, if we can submit ourselves to the scriptures and let them shape us, and if we can be filled with the kind of love that pushes through boundaries, I think we'll be brilliant. I think that when we next get someone to come and share a word that describes the church in the UK, they might say, well, there's, there may still be a fair bit of incompetence around, but look at you guys. Look at what God's doing with you, and we'll be hugely encouraged.